Hey, this is the last Sunday before Thanksgiving. Mmm, that's my Thanksgiving sound. It's good to have you here. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. Um, I'm the teaching pastor here at Legacy. So if you're a guest, welcome. Thanks for coming. It's good to have you here. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3, verse 15. Galatians 3. And if you're real fast, you can go ahead and stick a finger or a bookmark in Matthew 20 as well. Those are going to be the two passages that kind of help us see God's work among mankind most clearly today. They're going to be the biggest help. Um, Kevin is right. Today is a tough passage. Paul is leading us into some real heady stuff, and it's going to require some teaching, um, which I'm glad to do. To be honest with you, I love to preach. I love to teach even more. Teaching is my first passion above preaching. So I'm going to do the best job I can today to unpack this and to draw some direct lines to you to see what it means for us today as God's people and how we can behold him as bigger and more beautiful. Um, I think, I think one of the more difficult things for people to contend with and engage, especially newer Christians, I won't say younger because it doesn't matter what age you are, but something that's difficult for even newer Christians to contend with and understand is Old Testament law. What to do with it. How to follow it. Which laws to follow. Which laws to discard. Because there's a lot of them, isn't there? No less than 613 laws God gave the nation of Israel. And just to put that into perspective for you. Today, currently, as of today, there are 367 laws in the official NFL handbook. 367 that's a lot. And listen, if you're an NFL fan, I mean, agree with me with this. Hasn't it got more complicated as a game? I mean, a tackle is rarely a tackle now. I mean, even the, you don't know what's inbounds, what's out, what, what penalty is that? Did that change this year? Or did that change last year? And all the rules, it's growing heads. It's becoming a more complex game. 613 laws that God has given his nation, Israel. Now, some of these we all hear and we understand and we respond to. We say, I believe it. Um, like, thou, thou shalt not murder, right? That's one of the 613. We all follow that, right? We do the best we can anyway, right? Shall not steal. Don't steal. That's another one. But what about the ones that we discard real easily? Because we don't see the connection between the ancient Israelite culture, the ancient Jews, and today. So we see the big delta between us and them, and we just discard it. That can't be for today, right? Let me give you a, an example. This is going to be in Deuteronomy 22. It'll be up on the screen. When you build a new house, Moses says, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you, not, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Right? How many of you have followed that law? How many of you are putting parapets on your house, huh? Not so many? What about the laws that are kind of in between? The ones in between, I know I should be doing this, and that's not really for today. Like a Sabbath, right? That's always a foggy thing, isn't it, for some people? What about tattoos, right? You don't really know why you contend with it or why you don't. I mean, when I was a young pastor, I think I was probably 21 or 22. I was way too young to be a pastor. But when I was in my young, young 20s, I really wanted a tattoo real bad, right? I just wanted one. I just, I, so I remember saying it around a pastor friend of mine who I was doing life with. I said, hey, I'm going to go get a tattoo this week. I'm going to go look at some artwork today. I'm excited. And he goes, bro, brother, you can't do that. That's a sin. 
I said, a sin? Well, that's new to me. He goes, well, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 19. And he said this, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. What do you do with that? I thought, it is a sin. Or is it? And why is it that we would follow that but not others? I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say yes to and what to say no to. And I didn't know what the rules and the parameters were, right? It's kind of confusing. Anyone in here confused? Anyone in here with me in that camp? Some of you. You don't even know what a parapet is. You raise your hand. (laughs) I mean, does the Old Testament law, does it bring us more value in God's eyes? Do I get taller in God's sight? Am I more obedient? Does he like me more if I follow more of those 613 laws? And if not, why not? Which ones do I blow off? Right? You've got folks today... I bump into them all the time that they will celebrate Jewish festivals even though they're not Jewish because they think it's going to please God more, right? Hey, what are you guys doing this weekend? Oh, nothing, brother. It's Rosh Hashanah. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you Jewish? No. But we're supposed to do that. That's the Day of Atonement, brother. You know, don't you understand? That's the Day of Atonement. That's an important day, right? But we've had a better day of atonement that's already come and gone, right? That was pointing to a different day of atonement. We celebrate that every day, right? Oh, no, no. It's one of the laws. It's one of the 613, right? People are confused. Paul today is contending with a church that has gone sideways. If you're a guest, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and this is just a snapshot. The church has gone sideways. He planted these churches. He spent a long time building a beautiful cornerstone and showing Jesus Christ displayed valiantly, gloriously, as a sufficient offering for a God who is very satisfied. The beautiful gospel for these people, displayed, believed, implanted, churches growing. And then these false teachers come in, these Jewish false teachers come in, and they stop it in its tracks. They say, no, 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 no. Jesus wasn't totally sufficient. God's not totally satisfied. There's a few things you got to do if you really, really want to be saved. And so that's where we're going to jump in in Galatians 3. So... Look at verse 15 and just come with me and bear with me. This is a difficult passage. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now that's a, that's a lot of stuff right there. It's almost like we were in a courtroom for a minute, right? Listening to the language that they used. So Paul is virtually saying this. He's like, let me break it down for you guys and give you an example that we all understand. When we make contracts back and forth and we put the terms down and we sign it and we seal it, we don't go back and fool with that. It's sealed. We don't start messing around with the terms. We don't change things. We don't cancel it. It it, it is honored until the terms come true. So Galatian church, if you understand that, then you should understand that God brought a contract or a covenant to Abraham. Sealed. Done. Ready to go. So 430 years later, another contract, another covenant, that can't come back and change this. That's not the way it works. 
One doesn't cancel another. One doesn't change another. Two different ones. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul is using the word covenant, which isn't a word that we use much today. I mean, you'll see it dusted off and kind of resuscitated for... Is this sign language for resuscitate? Right here? It ought to be. Sometimes you'll see pastors bring it back to life for weddings, right? But really the closest thing we have in today's language is contract, and that falls very, very, very short of what a covenant really is. The best definition I've found is by Michael Lawrence, who's written heavily on biblical theology. He says this, covenants are relationships under authority that have both obligations and rewards. Under authority, they have obligations, and they have rewards. The terms are spelled out, and there are consequences if the relationship is cracked or broken. So this covenant, this contract, this covenant that came to Abraham by God, it's beautiful. It came with no strings attached. It's one-sided. No obligations on Abraham. That's the beauty of this thing. He simply believed God's promise, and he received an inheritance. It's important that you see that. This is a covenant that we call covenant of grace. God brings blessing and favor even if Abraham is a loser. Even if he's a loser. And he did some loser stuff too. Keep reading and you'll see it. But God's blessing comes even despite that. It's a one-sided covenant. God promises to Abraham no matter what. Now, 430 years later, which is a long time, you have Mount Sinai. In Exodus, Moses tromping down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Later, to have 603 more added by God for the nation of Israel. He brings a different covenant. He's bringing a covenant not of grace, but of works. The law. That's what the law is. He's bringing the law to bear. Now, this is not a one-sided covenant. This covenant was burdened down with requirements and a code of behavior. There were demands. There were threats. This covenant is not one-sided, but it requires obedience for it to work. If you do, God will bless. If you don't do, God will curse. Obligations. Do you see the difference? You have to see the difference between those two. One is of grace, one-sided, blessing no matter what. The other is law or covenant of works that comes, but there's an obligation to it. Two different, separated by 430 years. Let's jump in verse 19 of Galatians as we keep going says that, why then the law, Paul says. Okay, pause right there. Why is he saying it? He's presuming a question. He's, he's understanding that they're already asking the question, well, if that's true, Paul, if you're so smart, then why even bring the law? Why is it there? I mean, if the law doesn't justify us before God, if we don't get the Holy Spirit because we follow the law, if Jesus became a curse because we weren't able to follow the law perfectly, if all that happened, then why would he even bring the law? What's the point? Why not just start it with Abraham, be done with Abraham? Why the law at all? It's not such a dumb question. Verse 19, he says, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was added to the mix because of sin and rebellion, at least until Jesus could come. Sin and rebellion. There's a couple big reasons for this. All right. And these are the big ones that I, I feel like fit the text the best, but if you wanted to do research on this, there's a lot of reasons some people give. I think the primary one is that God gave them a law to reign in sin and to distinguish them from the surrounding pagan nations, right? 
You see, there was three parts. Now, this is real broad, okay? Because there's 613 laws. But there's been noticed three broad categories of different kinds of laws. And each of them distinguished the nation a little bit differently. There's civil law, which distinguishes Israel physically. Hey, our speed limits are different, right? Lying in court will get you something different here than it will in other nations. So, hey, if you come here, you better tap the brakes because our speed limits are different. We're different from you. Our civil law is different, right? And you've got other kinds too. You've got moral law. They're moral law. Now, that is what distinguished them from the surrounding nations ethically. Lust. Think about lust, things like that. Things that might not have been a struggle or even something that was a serious item in other nations. It was a serious item with them. Then you've got ceremonial law. And that's what distinguished them from other nations culturally. We have robes that look this way and we wear them when when we kill animals that look this way. We have different ceremonies, traditions. Culturally, we look different. That's actually, just a side note, that's actually where the false teachers were accusing Paul of messing up and transgressing himself. It wasn't because of the moral law, it wasn't because of the civil law, it was because of the cultural law. The cultural law is where they were calling him out, right? So, without these laws, without the 613 laws, they would just create their own rules and then it would look just like the other nations that were surrounding them. The problem with that is, is God was building a platform and building a stage where Jesus Christ would make sense. He was building a stage where the climactic act would be Jesus Christ coming, living, dying, and living again, where the gospel could be displayed. And it was going to happen in this kingdom, all part of God's design. It needed a law. God was brilliant. He gave them a law. Another reason he gave them the law and why this is because of transgression, as the text says, is to show them how bad and how deep and how sleazy the rebellion really was. It's just to show them how far from God they really were. I mean, think about it. They didn't even know what sin was until God showed them. They didn't even know what to define it as until God gave them the words to say. In in fact, this is interesting. When it comes to laws given, there is something in the law that excites something in all of us that makes us want to sin even more. It exacerbates something in us that we just want to sin more. I mean, give me a sign that says wet paint. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I want to see if it's really wet. Even if it's like a finger. I just want to see, right? Don't click here with your mouse. Well, what's all the, what's all the chatter about? I just want to see. There's some, I mean, you give a set of people a group of rules, you will develop a set of rule breakers. There's just something in us. It's been cracked since the beginning, since the garden. And in fact, that's why Paul says in the latter part of Romans 7, on through the early part of 8, he says, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the what? The commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. God also gave them the law to show them how inadequate their own cleaning methods were to cleanse themselves of their own sin. Part of the law that he gave was in regards of sacrifices, the sacrificial system, right? I mean, that's the part, that's where all good, well-meaning Bible diets go to die right there. You know, you start in January, I'm reading the whole Bible this year. You get halfway through Deuteronomy and you check out, right? It's because this part of the law. Why did God do that? 
The whole idea behind that law is we're going to dress a certain way, only certain people, especially during certain times of the year, and we're going to destroy an animal. And we're going to destroy it, and we're going to, the blood's going to spill out, and there's going to be aroma, go, it's going to look like Dungeons and Dragons. There's blood, there's smoke, there's men in robes, you know. It's going to look totally crazy. Why? It was an image of, I am guilty, but this animal is going to be destroyed in my stead, right? Punishment goes to the animal. I receive blessing, but what happens? We just keep sinning. We've got to do it again, don't we? And again, and again, and again, and we just keep repeating. Until when? Until the perfect sacrifice comes until the blameless lamb the lamb with no spot comes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices all of that was to point to jesus they needed to be shocked and discouraged so that in their sin whenever jesus came it would make sense this is what martin luther says when it comes to that text he says this monster of self-righteousness he's talking about himself okay This is Martin Luther for you. This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big, fat axe. And that is what the law is, a big axe. The proper use and function of the law, he says, is to threaten until the conscience is scared stiff. Scared stiff and left with no answer until Jesus comes and shows us that he is the answer. That's the role of the law. That was the role given to the law in total simplicity. In total simplicity, the law itself was meant to point to Jesus. It anticipates Jesus. It's excited at the arrival of Jesus. It points to Christ. That's the purpose of the law, folks. That's the main purpose of the law. So if we were to continue through the text in Galatians 19, to get back to Paul, he says, and it, it meaning the, the law, was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So that's a little bit like reading a Rubik's Cube right there. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first glance. The best interpretation that I've been able to find, the one that makes the most sense to me when it comes to the angels, is that there were angels present when God gave the law to Moses, who was the intermediary. He was the mediator, right? So, and it says this in Deuteronomy 33. I think we can put that up on the screen too. He came, God, came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So this is the picture. You've got Mount Sinai. The whole thing is shaking. There's lightning. There's thunder. It's dark. There's dread. He's alone. The weight of God is there. The heavens part. You have thousands upon these swirling creatures, all noble and majestic and glorious, all singing the praises of God. God is there with fire at his right hand. And that is when the law is given. And who is it given to? Moses. He's the mediator. This is important here. He's the referee. He's the mediator between God and between man. Two parties, right? Two parties. Man would obey. God would bless. Man would disobey. God would curse. But in the covenant of grace, it's different. There's only one mediator. In fact, there's no mediator. God did it himself. No in-between, no referee, no need for a Moses. It was just God dealing directly with Abraham, saying, listen, no obligations, no strings attached. One party, regardless of how defective Abraham became, God would bless him. And this is the thing. If you were a Christian in here today, spiritually, you were of the spawn and of the seed of Abraham. You were one of Abraham's seed. That's how the Bible refers to us, spiritually. 
That means the same promise and the same inheritance comes to you. If you're a loser, God has grace for you. There's an inheritance and a promise for you if you're flaky, if you're scandalous, if you're dark. It's the same covenant. Believers, we are under the Abrahamic covenant. But now listen, if you're an unbeliever and if you're far from Jesus, if you are not a believer in here today, you're under a different covenant, understand? You're under the one of law. Good luck with that. There's over 613 of them, right? That's what's there for you. Now, if you could pull it off, as the text will later say, then you're in good shape, right? But no one can pull it off. So we know, we know that the law is good for something and the fact that it points to Jesus, right? That we can, we, that we can tell, and that was the role that was given to it by God. Now look at verse 21 as we continue through the passage. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? See, so he's presuming another question. He's thinking what they would be thinking. Is it contrary? Are those two canoes going in a different direction then? Paul, you're so smart. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Hey, if someone could have done it, they would have done it already. Right? This is, okay, that was hard. That was heady. That was heady. This is one of the things I'm carrying out of this for us today. I think humans mishandle the law and we do it with style. Right? We struggle with it. We don't know what to ignore. We don't know what to obey. We kick it around. We just blow off some of it. Some of it we overemphasize to a weird level. And we just don't know how to handle it. And I think ultimately our deepest mistake is we dress up the law to make it play a role it was never meant to play. I think one of the ways we do this is we use the law to give us and build our value. How much of these laws can I, can I honor? Almost like we make a ruler of it. Think of it, think of it in that terms. It's the easiest term I could think of. If we had a ruler right next to us, a big one, 613 inches of it, right? And we put it up next to us. Man, it's been a good season. I've actually been meeting a lot of these rules and laws. I look pretty what? tall in God's eyes. God likes me more because I'm following more rules. I'm following more laws. And then when we're very despicable, we take that ruler and we extend it to other people and that's how we measure them. That's how we look at them. How you measure yourself is how you will measure others, right? And that's what these false teachers were doing to the Galatian church. That's exactly what they were doing. This is their ruler, all 613 inches, holding it up next to themselves. And then they turned it and they put it next to the Gentile Christians. And they said, oh, you're almost there. You're so close. Oh, you're so close. A lot of the things we say are the same. But you're just a couple inches short. Like circumcision would fix that. Start there. Dietary laws. Having the same calendar. And then, friend, then we're, then we're doing good. Right? And I think it's easy for us as a church. I think it's easy for us to sit back all tattooed, all pierced, eating pork, on a Sabbath, (laughs) on Yom Kippur. I think it's easy for us to do that and think, man, I've got this mastered, the whole old... Jesus replaced all of that, didn't he? I mean, I don't have to follow any of it. And I think we might do that without thinking about it, or we might do it with, with thinking about it. But let me tell you, it's not a blessing for us or it's not some good accommodation that we're discarding some of the old law whenever we're adding our own laws. We just add our own inches. We'll find our own inches. We'll we'll look for something else to build value in God's eyes. We'll look for some other ruler. We just build our own ruler. I mean, what do your inches look like? 
What is it that you value yourself highly in God's eyes? That whenever you say, I do this well, I measure up and my stature grows in God's sight. Homeschooling? Is it homeschooling? I know it is for a lot of people. Reading the right books? Showing up to stuff? Serving? Being active? King James Version only? ESV Version only? Right? Being cool, being fit, not being a pervert, not being an addict, not being a mess up, not being immature, not being illiterate. What do the notches on your ruler look like? I thought and thought and thought about this over the week. And you know what I came up with for myself? I think I have a problem with activity. I was thinking about this. I think I value myself when I'm more active for for God. When I'm more active, I feel like he likes me more or blesses me more. So I, I do things. I'm more of a doer. It's my personality, right? So what happens? I take that ruler and I extend it to others. And if they're not doing something, I feel more valuable. I feel like they could increase their value by what? Doing something. So if they're static, I have a hard time with static Christians for that very reason, because of how I value myself. If they, if they slide backwards, I really struggle. But if you ask me who I think is doing good and who is highly valued in God's eyes, my heart will want to tell you people that are doing things. You see how quick and easy that is to do that? I added an inch to a ruler, didn't I? And I didn't even need the Old Testament to be the Old Testament for me to do that. So what is it for you? Because whatever you use for yourself, you are using on others. You see, when it comes to this passage, I'm not so sure. Now, I cannot defend this biblically. I'm going to give you an opinion. I will start off with this because this is not stated explicitly that I know of in the passage. Okay? I don't think the false teachers collided with Paul mentally. They're smart guys. I can read the passage and understand it just fine. Right? And they're smarter than me. I guarantee you these false teachers were. Right? I don't think that they were just... They just couldn't understand each other like dolphin squawking or something. I mean, I think they understood each other, right? I think the real problem was a heart problem. I think they didn't like the fact that these Johnny-come-latelys, these new Gentile Christians, were getting the same shiny prize that they were without all the work. Are you guys, are you kidding me? We've been, we've been here forever. We've been here for years. We've been here for centuries, Obeying all the rules, obeying all the laws, doing all the celebrations, wearing all the clothes, 613 laws. And you think that you could just swoop in here at the last minute with pork on your breath, all tatted up? You think you could just come in and get the same God we're getting? <laughs> think again. Think again. You've got some dues to pay, right? Starting with circumcision. I'm sure that's what they were most bitter about. Starting with circumcision. Jesus helps us considerably on this. Whenever I think about texts like Galatians, I look to see where I am in the text. And it'd be really easy for me to say, well, I'm just one of the confused Galatians. I think I'm not too far from being a false teacher on a bad day because of how my heart is. I know my theology is good, but I know my heart can be wicked, right? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 20 as a parable that really rips the cover off of this for me. He says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's about 25 or 30 bucks, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out, about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. 
and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out, and about the sixth hour and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyards too. Now, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages because are beginning with the last up to the first. Now that right there is going to cause some problems right there. The dudes that showed up last get paid first, right? They're at the bar before the guys that have been there all day. That's a problem. You want to create strife in the workplace. That's a great place to start right there. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. That's what I thought. I would have thought that. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who've become the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give this, these last workers as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. If you're wondering where you're at in that passage, you're the complainer at the end. Right? It's always a fun place to be. We're complainers. It's a good passage. I think God does two very beautiful and helpful things in this parable when it comes to us. And I think it helps me see the false teachers a little bit. I think it does. I think God attacks our way of measuring our own self-value and our own self-worth. He attacks our ruler. He gets a hold of it. We typically think if others get the same thing we get, but they've not worked as hard, doesn't that bother you? Anyone ever been in that place? Payday comes, the dude leaning on the shovel on the cell phone who came late and left early, and he gets the same amount you do? Don't you feel like your work has just been devalued? And wouldn't that make you feel like you yourself are devalued? I think it would me. I think it would. By God's grace and by the cry of our heart, by God's grace, we will have a church where people will be here and they struggle, they struggle because they're new Christians or they're growing, I don't care where they're at in their walk, but listen, we will have folks in this church and we already have them that struggle with addictions. They love the gospel. They love Jesus. They can preach it. They've read, they've gone through the Bible in a year, and they've been through three Piper books and whatever else is on your list. They've done it, and they struggle with hard addictions. Pattern failures. They're going to fail. They're going to go to the bar when they shouldn't. They're going to smoke some weed when they should. They're going to do whatever. We're going to have some people in here who have same-sex attractions, and that's something that they struggle with. That's something that, man, they they know what the gospel says to them. They appropriate it, but on a bad day, listen, they're going to fail. They're going to fail. They're going to be pattern failures too. By God's grace, we're going to be a church full of people that struggle. Now listen, can you do life with people who struggle and are pattern failures and they get the same shiny prize you do? Can you do life? It's important. This is important. Or are you going going to want them to, I don't know, pay their dues? And and what would those dues look like? Hey, friend, I know you're a Christian, but really, if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be a valued Christian, if you want to grow in your stature before God, you shouldn't have this struggle anymore. 
you should work hard like me. See, I'm valuable in God's eyes. I don't struggle with alcohol. I don't struggle with homosexuality, right? Can you see that? Can you see how we extend the ruler? It can be tough. This is tough. I know this is tough. I think the second thing he does is this. He shows us that the gift is by his choice and by his generosity. Not to lead us to grumble, but to be humbled. But to be humbled. This is hard for me. You know, I've only been a reformed pastor for maybe five years. Not a long time. But let me tell you what I struggle with. And if I'm honest to you today, I would say there still are moments where I struggle inside. Over the fact that God would collect me. And the fact that God chooses me before I even have an opportunity to choose him. That he pursued me when I was worthless. And then I was only able by the changing of my heart to see him and see my sin and see his glory. And she, that, that I struggled with, folks. Because God, if that's true, I would reason. If that is true, that means that there's people walking around right now that you will not purpose to choose, that you will not elect, that you will not choose, that you will not chase after and pursue. You will not do that to some. And God, that's not fair. It's just not fair. I mean, has anyone in here ever struggled with that before? Honestly? Goodness gracious, I have. One day reading the Word, reading, I think it was Romans 8, maybe 8 and 9, just reading through the Word, I felt God help me with that by reminding me how treasured and honored I was. Yeah, Luke, that's true. That's true. But I chose you. I selected you. I didn't have to. And you'd be still worshiping yourself and your old perverted lifestyle all the way back. You might be more wealthy for sure. You might have a bigger house for sure. You might look different. But listen, you'd be a mess. I could have left you there swimming in your own sin, but I didn't. I didn't. I captured your heart. My only response to that is, yes, King, you're very good to me. You're very beautiful. It's a hard doctrine, but you're very beautiful. I don't understand all of it, God, but you're very beautiful. It doesn't lead me to grumble against him as, long as, or as much as it used to. It leads me to be humbled by how generous of a king he really is. By how powerful his arm is outstretched. Verse 22 says this. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay. What that shows us is that the law just holds us in dungeons of rebellion, under the foot of the enemy, chained, shackled, all waiting for that perfect moment where God comes and he brings a covenant of Abraham, one of grace, a one-sided one with no obligations, where he kisses us and calls us children, and we cannot pull him away. We cannot push him away. We can't earn it. We can't show that we are worth it. This is huge for me. No strings attached. This is huge for me. Listen, this is why. This might shock some of you because of the way you grew up in Sunday school seeing Abraham. Listen, he was not a nice dude when God found him. He wasn't found reading his study Bible, right? He wasn't highlighting that when God showed up on the scene. He wasn't in a prayer meeting. He wasn't doing anything like that. I don't know if he was worse than everybody else, but he wasn't better than everybody else. Just walking around Ur, just walking around the city, looking like everybody else, thousands of heads floating around, and he's just one of them, right? How did God find him? Misbehaving. Found him worshiping the moon. He was a pagan idol worshiper when God found him. He wasn't following the 613 laws that weren't even there yet. Right? 
In Ur, they worshipped several gods. The moon was the primary one. So when God showed up and spoke to him, he was worshipping the moon. That's difficult. So listen, if you're a Christian, though, it should encourage you. It should encourage you as to how God found you and what covenant you're under now. Because like Abraham, you were brought into a covenant by believing in God's promise. Not a promise of what God will do, but a promise of what God has done in Christ. And when we believe upon God's promise, we receive the fruit, the inheritance of that covenant. So rich for us. And that was because of his choosing, and that was because of his generosity. And that should break us down to our knees and humble our proud hearts before a king. That's the proper response to that. And for some of you, I think this should also be an encouragement to you, because I know some of you are on a missional footing, and as a missionary, you struggle, and you're striving, and you're trying really hard for your neighbors to see Jesus correctly. You're trying hard for your friends, for your coworkers, for your family. A lot of you are about to see a lot of family, right? It's Thanksgiving. And some of you have been praying that they just see Jesus clearly. But man, don't they look far away? I mean, don't they look like they're just a million miles away from Jesus? Like they're just forever away. Rejoice. Rejoice. I mean, do they look like they're just never going to choose Jesus? Rejoice. Because your God is really good at closing the gap. Your God is really good. Your God is really good at making a light year seem like it never happened. He took a moon worshiper. It made him the subject of most of the, new, of, of the Old Testament, right? I was actually worshiping worse than the moon when God found me. I was worshiping myself. That's real successful, right? So I'm worshiping myself, living my own life, don't want God. Within three weeks, preaching the gospel open air on a college campus. How did that happen? Not because I'm some stud. It's because God is good, he's big, and he closed the gap for me. He changed my heart. I couldn't do that without him changing my heart. So do they look like they're just so far away? Rejoice. Ask Paul, a man who was on the road to persecute a church and then became the subject of the New Testament, one of the most influential Christians since Jesus to ever walk the earth. And make no mistake, friends, when he was on the road to Damascus, he wasn't going to be an official. He was going to torture women and children. That's what they did. He was a child torturer. A, a fem- he was torturing families, splitting them up, putting them in prison charging them fines, just dismantling their businesses. He was rooting out what he saw as a cult. He wasn't doing that with gloves on. So how did God find Paul? Misbehaving. Misbehaving. Let that encourage you as a missionary, as you're praying for your friends. Boy, it's easy to lose hope for them, isn't it? They don't ask the right questions. They don't ever want to hang out. Every time you bring up God, they change the subject, and you're like, oh, this is never going to work. Boy, your God is huge. He's big. So, you thought I was avoiding the question, how do we handle the Old Testament laws? Just to get back and give you a quick thing really fast before we tie this off. I found the most helpful little rubric and grid is given to us by Justin Taylor, right? So if you have an ESV study Bible, he was the managing editor of that. He's a pastor, does a really good job with things like this of this caliber. This is the grid that he's given that I found the most helpful. He says, first of all, remind yourself that that Old Testament law is not your law. You're not legally bound to it. Whoops. Did that, some of you might struggle with that. Let that sink. Let it sit. It's not your law. You're not legally bound to it. It's one that God issued to ancient Israel as part of his covenant with them. Two, 
Determine the original meaning, the original significance and purpose of that law. Let's use a couple examples. We'll go back to the parapet. What is one? It's a guardrail. It's just a guardrail like you see at ballparks. I don't know how high. I'm doing this like it was this high. I don't know how high it was. But they'd put it on their roofs. Why? Because that's where they did life. They'd get out of the house and they'd go up on the roof. So in the evenings you see a lot of Jewish people on the roof just doing life together, crushing old Milwaukee's, talking about the day, just getting on with life until Bob has too many old Milwaukee's spills over the edge of the roof because there was no parapet and the spike goes through his leg and the blood, the guilt of that is on who? The homeowner. Right? That's what that means. That's all that means. It's not complicated, right? What about tattoos? What's the, what was the purpose of that law being in there? Why is that in Leviticus? The, the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, they, they would tattoo themselves and cut and slice and use brands and brand images on their skin and cut their skin and, and do what we would just call it, just a run-of-the-mill tattoo to honor and celebrate death and to celebrate the dead. So he's like, don't do that or you'll look like everybody else. We don't do death like everybody else does do the, the, the way that they do death. We're different. There's a distinction there. That's why it's in there. We're not looking like other nations. We're different. We're distinguished. Third, Justin Taylor says, determine the theological significance of the law. How does this, re- how does this interact with God? Sure, that's the meaning of it. That's the purpose of it back then. But how does that interchange with God? Why is that important? We'll go back to the parapets. Why is that important to have a guardrail? Because we value and treasure the sanctity of human life. We, we actually like humans to live. <laughs> Why? Because they're made in the image of God. And we prize that. We love God's image. We fight for God's image. And those who reflect it, that's the theological significance of that. What about tattoos? We've kind of already said that. We don't imitate a pagan culture because we do death differently. We don't celebrate death. We celebrate the one who beat death. Death itself is reinterpreted for us. That's the theological interchange that has. Four, he says, determine the practical implications for your own circumstances today. Determine your own. What what does it mean for you today? What are the practical implications? We'll go back to the parapet. We'll use that as an example. What are the practical implications? Get your brakes checked. So you don't go careening into a crowd with a lot of people and start plowing them over, you know? Because we value human life, right? If you've got a pit bull, put it on the leash. I know he's cute. I know he's young. Just put it on a leash. Don't put so many Apple stickers on your back window. You can't see cars coming. Because we val- And yes, you might need a balcony with a guardrail if you're building a house. Be respectful of people that are around you. Understand that you might be doing things or not doing things that could cost people their life. And we respect life. Now, so is this law helpful for us today? Yeah, it's helpful. It's helpful. We use it. Is it, Luke, do you have to build a parapet for God to like you more? No, you don't. And if you don't build a parapet, you won't go to hell. Okay? It's just telling us what we already know. But we don't follow it because it's in the Old Testament law. We follow it because we love Jesus. And because of Jesus, we value human life. Because of Jesus, who died to save humans, to save mankind, we value mankind. What about tattoos? Everyone with a tattoo is just, they're just really nervous right now, aren't they? It's all right. Listen, tattoos don't really serve the same purpose that they used to, do they? 
do they? I mean, they don't. We don't do it to celebrate death anymore. We do it because it expresses just a, a thing that we love or something that's important to us, right? So we, you get, get a tattoo if you want to get a tattoo. But let me say this real quick. Why are you doing it? You better ask yourself some hard questions, right? Because it does matter. Even though tattoos are not a sin before the Lord, yours might be. Because why are you getting it? Are you not so firmly seated in God's approval of you that you need mankind's approval so you're going to get thug life put on your abs or whatever else you might do? Do you need that so bad because you can't see Jesus loving you or God valuing you? Why are you getting the tattoo? It matters. I mean, hey, that's, if you go to the gym to get all swole up, it matters why you're doing that too. Ink aside, right? Anything you do to get man to value you more because you're not satisfied with how God values you. So I would say, if you do, we're still to be distinguished from the surrounding nations. So why are you doing the things that you do? So is it a sin to get a tattoo? No, it's not. It's not a sin to get a tattoo, but it might be for you. <laughs> you like my way of answering but not answering your question? There you have it. Listen, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a Christian, because all of that were imperatives and supposed to be helping you if you are. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you are encouraged by how God found Abraham. He found him misbehaving. He found him serving, worshiping himself. He didn't find him cleaned up. I think because I was one who went to church, I would iron my clothes and put starch on it. That was back when starch was cool, you know. I would starch it thinking if I look good enough, if I look good enough, I might even fool God into thinking that I'm all okay inside because I'm probably going to fool everybody else around me, right? But there was always this thing in the back of my mind. I'm not going to go to church or to talk to a pastor or read the Bible until I get my life cleaned up. I've got some things to do. I've got some inches to grow. I've got some inches, some stature to grow before God will even value or credit my actions right now. Look at Paul. Look at Abraham. Look at me. Look at your friend. If you're very far from Christ. And let me tell you, he, he specializes in finding those who are dirty. The gospel is only for those who are dirty and know how dirty they are. It's not for you if you're already cleaned up. If you don't need Jesus, the gospel's not for you. But the gospel is for those who are failed, who are pattern failures, and understand how bad they really are. So if you've come here and you're dirty, welcome. Welcome. God loves you. God loves you. And he's giving you an opportunity even today. I tell you what, go ahead and stand up with me. And we're going to shift into the last part of this service. The team's going to come up. I'm going to give you some charges really quick. just want to re-mention the fact that we have communion in the back. So as the songs go, there's three or four songs. As the songs go, yes, we worship God. In song, we lay our hearts down because he's pushed on some of you. He's definitely pushed on me, right? And we respond. But we have communion elements, what represents God's blood spilled and his body broken. And we take those as a reminder of what God has done, but also as a promise of what will come at a final banquet when we're all around the table with Jesus Christ once again. So that is why we do that. But listen, I want you, if you're a Christian, I want you to really look at the notches on your ruler. What is it that you've traditionally used to measure your own stature before God? What is it? 
Because if it's not the active work, death, and life of Jesus Christ, you're mismeasuring yourself. And you're very potentially using that same measurement on those around you. Right? It's affecting community. It's affecting mission. It's affecting everything. Right? If you're far from Christ, right? Listen, there was a time where Moses came down from the hill with a law that we could not follow. Many, many, many years later, there would be another, a better Moses, ascend a different hill, not carrying the law, but carrying a cross, because you never could follow the law. It's just a tale of two hills. That's all it is. And I think God might be pushing and creeping in and moving and shifting some things around in you. And listen, if that's true, if that's true, you want to move on that. Respond to God's grace. Respond to his kindness. He is a noble king. And he is not frustrated in what he wants. So as we worship, I know I'll be at the back over in this corner and Kevin and Rebecca will be back there. And we'll have people in the back. If you want to talk to somebody, and you don't even have to have all the right words down, but if you need to talk to somebody, right, we'd love to help you through this. We'd love to navigate. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to talk to you.